0: We we don't want it to be an hour of uh, us talking about how great the Bay Area is in every episode because that's a lot of people are talking about. We we want it to be an hour of two guys from New Jersey talking about hoagies.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah two. two
0: hours. You know what I could go for yeah. right now? A Tony Luke's cheese steak.
1: We can we can do two hours about how much better the Eagles are than the Patriots and how our owner doesn't get caught in prostitution rings. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> this is, he doesn't. That's, I like that's
1: that you said the new standard now. <laughs> yeah, doesn't get caught. Yeah, like, I can't speak as to whether or not Jerry, Jeffrey Lurie partakes in prost- prostitution rings. He just doesn't get caught and end up on the front page of the New York Times.
2: <laughs>
0: Farmhouse. This is a podcast with amazing guests, amazing stories, and I'm going to say two
2: okay hosts.
0: My name is Alex. Mediocre. (laughs) Mediocre, yes.
1: I'm Jordan Smart, and with us today is?
2: Uh, Kristen Elsmore.
1: So Kristen is, you know, following on from my wife Ashley is the second guest who is joining us from the Bodega Marine Laboratory. So talking about something a little bit more relevant to everybody's life than random esoteric engineering stuff we usually talk about maybe i mean yeah we we hope so <laughs> um, but yeah i guess just to to kick it off um can you tell us a little bit about yourself like let's start with say where you're from uh
2: yeah um i'm from Nevada, california which is uh, about an hour north of san francisco okay so share, did you say nevada california Novato. Nevada. Sorry. Okay.
0: I I, yep. I thought I was very confused that you were in the two states.
2: <laughs> I do mumble that a lot, and people often think I'm from Nevada. Yeah. <laughs>
1: California has not annexed Nevada yet. Not yet. Um, that's a secret <laughs> plan for later.
0: Shh, don't tell them. People are listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: but so yeah, so you're 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 a Bay Area native, um, which is kind of a rarity these days for people actually <laughs> in the Bay Area. Um so I wanted to ask, like, what's what's your perspective on how the area has changed, like I guess since you, you grew up here and like is it as different as people think it is or, or it is mostly the same, would you say?
2: Uh I'd say it's a little bit hard hard to answer that because as a child your world is small. Uh and so everything well it's it feels can feel really big, but the bubble that you operate in can be quite small. So uh I would say it, it definitely feels like it's changed mm-hmm. and the density there's just there are a lot more people around but and the traffic is is definitely worse <laughs> but <laughs> but it's it's really hard to separate that from my childhood life perspective from my adulthood mm-hmm. so
1: is there any like passions that you like carried over from childhood still I assume you weren't you know set out for to be a a marine ecological researcher from the age of like four but
2: um maybe you were <laughs> hey Prob- <laughs> you know? probably maybe. not from from four <laughs> but i uh there is that i do have a typical cheesy story uh that a lot of marine biologists have or are assumed to have mm-hmm. um so When I was in seventh grade, we did a dissection in science class on uh, sea stars. And I just remember the instructor telling us this story. I think it was kind of like an old folk tale of these fishermen that um, they kept getting sea stars caught in their nets and got frustrated by it. And so they would cut them in half and throw them back out to sea. (laughs) And unknowingly, they actually grew into two different sea stars when they were cut <laughs> in half, retaining uh, a, a piece of something called the central disc. Um, so it's like the middle mm-hmm. piece of a sea star. And and so then the next season when they went out, they had twice as many stars caught in their net. Um, and so I guess it was like an old folk tale, but the regen- regenerative pro- properties are actually quite true uh, in sea stars and a lot of species that inhabit the ocean. And so that blew my mind. I was like, that is insane. And I went home and I researched it more and got super excited about it. And I was like, the ocean has all of these crazy things in it. And I had no idea. So that's what I thought sparked my interest Mm -hmm. in marine science. But uh, my mom actually came across these drawings that I did when I was in third grade that were like all sorts of marine animals. And she was like, well... I guess it started a little bit before that. So <laughs> I, I couldn't say exactly when, but um yeah, certainly living in this area, being close-ish to, to the ocean played a role in that. Okay. So
1: yeah, I think I think Ashley did tell me at one point that even if that sea star thing is folklore, that at one point I think Japanese fishers were dealing with tons of jellyfish mm-hmm. in their nets. And so, what they decided to do was just like go to where the jellyfish were and drag like razor wire nets through them, <laughs> oh my gosh. like thinking that it would yeah. kill them. But it turns out that when they do that, they just like emergency panic and convert all of their body mass into like reproductive yep. cells. Yeah, and so the population just <laughs> exploded in response.
2: So a lot of those gelatinous creatures um, are what we call colonial. They they form colonies and are made up of a bunch of individuals that um, break off and then form more colonies. And so they probably were just accelerating that process. Yeah. <laughs> so.
1: never, n- never doubt the power of human intervention to make things worse. <laughs> um, part of, I guess, growing up, is there anything from the, the old days or from your childhood that you you miss or I imagine is, is different than you thought it was going to be getting into marine science?
2: Hmm. That's quite a question. Um, I guess I'll start in... I was fortunate enough when I was in high school to volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center, which mm-hmm. is in Sausalito. They they have centers all over, but um, that's the, the largest one. And when I first started volunteering there, it was... Uh, to put it nicely, it was a little bit more rundown. <laughs> now it's a very uh, fancy building they have like structure for visitors to come and view the animals without um, interacting with them at all And so there are definitely pros to that but as a volunteer it was pretty cool. There were a lot more things that I I got to see without that infrastructure And so uh, for example I one of the times I went I got to uh, watch a Sea lion necropsy, which is like an autopsy on a on a sea lion. And was it was it murder? Hold, um. It yeah, was, was. It was not. <laughs> no. It, uh, Law and order. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they actually could not determine the the cause of death. Ooh, which, it's Which uh, murder mystery? Yeah, murder, murder mystery. Yeah. Still to this day. <laughs> still, still a mystery, unknown. Um, but I got to to like hold a sea lion's brain in my hand, <laughs> which probably to a lot of people that sounds horrifying, but it was, it was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had. And really? and I think that I wouldn't necessarily attribute that not happening again to the Bay Area <laughs> density issue, but, um, <laughs> I think there are, there are things like that, that there are fewer people like at Muir Woods, Muir Woods has mm. always been pretty, pretty busy, but, Now you can't even go there without a reservation or something. Like it's – there's – I think the people thing is hard. But I I also feel like as I've gotten older, I'm like, ugh, people. I don't know. I I really like people. But I just – less. Less so than I did before. (laughs) I
1: guess on the the topic of dead sea lions, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of this story at parties. And I'm pretty sure you know the one I'm talking about because we were here – I guess a couple of months oh ago God. now. Yeah. Yeah. So we were here a couple of months ago. It was, you know, a nice Sunday and we were out for brunch, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just decided to have it out on the patio. Um, and of course, we're here at, at BML Housing, um, which has a gate and plenty of signs saying like, don't, this isn't a place for people to just come up and, and wander onto. Um, so we were surprised when we saw somebody wandering up the the driveway and, <laughs> um, You know, calls out like, hey, are you guys from the lab? And we're like, yeah, but this isn't like, we don't want to deal with you. Not giving you (laughs) any tours here. Yeah, yeah. And this woman just comes up with, I I think like whenever whenever you're in an unusual situation, you start to imagine like, okay, what's this person going to say? And, you know, there's a bunch of possibilities. And there's some wild stuff that you just, you know, is just so out there that you're like, that's not what it's going to be. But she just comes out and says, we have a dead seal in the car. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. It was like, what? Well, because because that's not like something that just happens to you, right? Like, that's not something that just... It's not
2: like I saw a dead seal. Yeah. It, is, it yeah. was in her car. <laughs> Inside her car. Do you
0: guys know how to cook it or... Do you
1: have any recipes yeah. or tips? Got any spices up there? Uh, yeah. So I think, I think we ended up... I mean, we did... I think, in fact, yeah, you personally, like, basically well, went and directed them to the Marine Mammal Because everyone couldn't stop laughing because <laughs> you're not fit to interact with this woman
2: who feels like she did something right. <laughs> um,
1: I mean, if I – I think we did double-check that what she had done was several kinds of federal crime. Yeah. Oh, because, yeah. Not,
2: not – no part of that was the correct course of action. But, uh, yeah, it's hard because she – I could see why she felt like she was doing the right thing. Yeah. Uh, Basically, what had happened was they, she was with, also to make it worse, was with small children. (laughs) So she had young children in her car with said dead seal or Mm -hmm. supposedly dead seal.
0: Um, Sorry, what? Supposedly?
2: Well, I chose to not look at it because i i didn't want to get too involved in the situation and so i just referred her to the marine mammal center uh instead of (laughs) your driveway giving yeah yeah just like please exit from our house (laughs) and take any Uh, cadavers you might have yes go
1: go there and call the people who are going to arrest you yes
2: (laughs) Yeah, so she, I guess they had, they'd come across this seal. It was a pup, supposedly. There's, it had to have been a pup, because I don't, or a, a baby, because there's no way she'd be yeah. able to get an adult in the car by herself. Um, but they, it, she said it was dry, <laughs> which I can understand if you think something is supposed to live in the, it o- lives in the ocean that it's supposed to be wet all the time, but mm-hmm. they are mammals and breathe air and haul out. They, they, come out onto land and so it should be dry sometimes and so she she was concerned with it being so dry and it was not near its mother which depending on its age that could be a perfectly appropriate situation for that seal to be in and so she was concerned no one else was worried about it basically (laughs) and put it into her car. I don't I can't remember if she put it into her car while it was still alive and was trying to get it to the Marine Mammal Center or somewhere that I, could help. Was, yeah, it was like or a Schrodinger it was, seal.
1: It was kind of ambiguous if it yeah. was alive or dead.
2: And we will never know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh yeah, she brought it here thinking that maybe we people at the Marine Lab could help, but she drove it. The Marine Lab is in Bodega Bay. And she drove it from Jenner, Mm -hmm. which is, or north of Jenner, which is Uh, probably about an hour, half hour to an hour away. So she (laughs) removed a a seal from, whether dead or alive. Okay, let's, best case scenario, we'll call it dead. It was
1: already dead, yeah.
2: Uh, so, so, So she removed a dead seal from the beach, put it in her car, put her children then in that car. And Next to this it.
1: rotting seal corpse. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then brought it to drove it to, to an academic lab. lab. Um, <laughs> and I I don't know what she thought we were going to do with it because supposedly she said it was dead, so there's no way to help it. Mm-hmm. And if it's <laughs> dead, it should probably stay yeah. where it was. I don't know. I I was trying very hard. It was a it was a challenging conversation to have, but the rest of the people there <laughs> well, were just flat out yeah, not we, even we trying. We you had laughed. the conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's I I can see why she thought it was the right thing, mm. but it was not. So. No, no, no. Yeah. It was not. Yeah. So. I I did not want to be the one to inform her that she broke the law in multiple ways. (laughs) I was going to let the Marine Mammal Center handle that one (laughs) because I I think her actions, you never know, but she might react differently to the situation once she finds out that that was (laughs) not the appropriate thing to do. And so I didn't want to make the problem worse, basically. Yeah. 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 So where'd you go to undergrad? <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Smooth sharp segue. Sharp segue. Uh, there were seals at my undergrad institution. it's oh, yeah? not that crazy. Okay. A segue. Um, I went to UC Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. and I studied marine biology. I think was my major. Okay. Yeah.
1: That is that is a beautiful campus. Yeah, I've heard it of is, only. It's I've never it's very been. much like built into the woods. It is. Really? Yeah.
2: In a forest. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I would go hiking to class. Uh. <laughs> it was also in a very hilly forest. So,
1: so there, yeah. So, so you said there were, were seals here, but but you know, the past couple of days, you know, doing doing my background research, there's been some rumors swirling that oh. you you got involved with with some other marine mammals at about that time. In your life. <laughs> doing your research, because, yeah, because you yeah. you used to be a dolphin trainer, that did you is, not?
2: That is true. I I did train dolphins and sea otters. In my past, yeah. Okay.
1: So was this like <laughs> when you were in undergrad or was this like a different period?
2: Um, so I was actually a, a marine mammal trainer during my undergraduate degree uh, through the university. Okay. But I actually went into school wanting to be a dolphin trainer. Like I was like, this is my plan. I'm going to school, going to college because, I don't know, that's just what what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I'm going to be a dolphin trainer. And that definitely changed throughout my graduate degree or undergraduate degree. But um, I, as a freshman, I found out about this lab that does marine mammal physiology work. And so, primarily, they're doing stuff like uh, diving physiology to see, uh, looking at um, energetic costs for marine mammals to do the type of diving they need to do to, to forage and to find food. And, and so I volunteered for this lab and they had marine mammals that they used, um, and worked with to, to conduct their research. Mm-hmm. And so they had to, these animals had to be trained to not only conduct those behaviors that they needed to, to collect the data, but also to maintain their health, um, throughout their their lifetime at the lab.
1: So was the, like, learning to, to train the animals, was that through the university as well, or was that, like, a separate program you had to pursue?
2: Um, in the context of the lab that I worked at, they, they actually had um, a course that they taught okay. for us. But you had to have worked there for a certain amount of time to basically enroll in that, in that course. Mm-hmm.
1: So then what was... Was there something in particular that made you shift away from the actual animal interaction and training towards the more, like, academic study?
2: Mm, yeah. I think there, there were a few things that played into that transition for me. Um, some of it was I had worked at Six Flags. Um, I think it's called Discovery Kingdom now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's had various names through the past. Um, but they I worked in the education department there and worked – so I worked intimately with the animal trainers because people would come and inter- have interactions with the animals, whether it was through swimming with the dolphins or doing behind-the-scenes tours and, and interacting with the animals there. And so I'd, I'd gotten to s- see um, what marine mammal training was really like. I mean, I wasn't actively doing it in a entertainment context, but um, I got some exposure to it there. And there were definitely like positive things about it. But one thing that seemed to be a pretty common uh, note, I guess, made by a lot of the trainers is that it's it's really hard to to work in the context of a business when you're trying to care for animals mm-hmm. and make sure that they are mentally and physically stimulated as well. Um, and so something that I, I really enjoyed about working at the, the lab and training animals in a research context was that, um, we, they were not show animals in any regard. They, permitting wise, they weren't allowed to have, um, they weren't allowed to use these animals for any sort of entertainment or gaining any monetary value through them. And, and so it was actually really a very cool experience to work with, the animals to conduct this research. And I liked, I liked the research context of it mm-hmm. and that became more clear to me as I worked at the lab longer and was also taking courses in um, scientific diving and invertebrate zoology and getting um, more exposure to the like myriad of species and, and coolness, I guess of the ocean. And so that exposure kind of ultimately was what shifted me away from being a Barbie dolphin trainer and doing my less glamorous in some ways (laughs) job now.
1: (laughs) So you were like, even before you, you left undergrad, you were preparing to go to grad school or was that a decision that came later?
2: Uh, That is a decision that came later. I, when I first finished up at UC Santa Cruz, I was like, there's no way I'm going to grad school. (laughs) No way. And there were actually, there were these two classes. I remember uh, marine botany and oceanography that were, they were, could have been requirements, but they were, they were optional. So you could choose like either to take invertebrate zoology or marine botany. And I was like, ugh, plants. (laughs) Nope. And then also oceanography. I was like, ugh physics? I don't think so. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, when am I ever going to use that? Turns out my entire PhD for both of those. But uh, yeah, I did not think I was going to grad school at that point. I had really only planned to undergrad. And I, once that came, I was like, "Uh, oh, I guess I did all the things now. (laughs) I don't, I don't really know what you're supposed to do now, but I guess I'll get a job and that's that's kind of where I was at when I graduated. So, yeah.
1: it's kind of the point you know eventually the point comes where you you beat the video game and then yeah. it's just like congratulations. Yep. There's there's no follow-up. It's just That like, is yeah. That <laughs> is
2: a very good analogy. That that is how I felt. And I I have uh I was a planner kind of as soon as I figured out that I wanted to study the ocean or like yeah like learn more about it i i was like okay i'm gonna do all of these things and this will get me there but i like the there was college Mm -hmm. i i hadn't thought beyond that and so i had all of these plans and like little tiny plans all throughout leading up to that point and then nothing (laughs) that was a very scary
1: feeling think i think all three of us at some point went through that yeah we're like oh hey this is reached the point i've been working for yeah what, what do i do now three, hold on five days yeah. <laughs> oh, so. yeah
2: it's a little bit dark but i probably shouldn't say this but i like throughout that process i was like well it would be very terrible to die but <laughs> if if i like like I don't know, the like, car went off a bridge or something, or like I just died. I would be totally satisfied with the life that I've lived so far. I like have done so many cool things. I'm very happy, and so
1: like that's morbid, but not the worst
2: sentiment. Yeah, <laughs> but now like I don't I don't know. It's after the this is kind of the unknown and awkward territory of mm. post school life. Really, I mean, we're still in school, but. <laughs> Uh, you, it's you, different. You it's are. very different.
1: Oh yeah, yeah but you're yeah. you're on to bigger one, and better one things. One of us is a full grown adult. <laughs> yeah, with, you know, one third. <laughs> it's pretty good. So, can I, so, so you mentioned that yeah, there were these two courses on marine botany and oceanography that you know you were completely disinterested in. Yeah. So uh, what are you researching these days, Kristen?
2: Oh, um, something kind of a mix between marine botany and oceanography. (laughs) Uh, Must have been that I just didn't know anything about it and I was trying to fill the void. Uh, No, I, um, yeah, so I study what the the current project that I'm working on right now is looking at uh, wave dynamics in kelp forests. And kelp forests are aquatic or uh, marine plants, not technically plants, but for all intents and purposes. They like kelp, are. Kelp aren't plants? They they are algae. Oh. So really? they're. Huh. I didn't realize that was yeah. a separate yeah. thing. I didn't know that yeah. either. Um, they, they don't have like a, a root system. Mm-hmm. And so they often are compared to uh, people like lump seagrasses and uh, kelps and marsh plants all together. But um, there are some distinctions between them that uh, influence kind of some of the things that I'm studying. Are
0: are they, are they normally, you say they don't have a root system, are they normally anchored or?
2: Yeah, they, so they do anchor, they, kelps, uh, kelp is a very broad term, but the particular species that I work with is, uh, called macrocystis periphera and they have an anchor system, which is basically just this adhesive property to, to some of their, uh, They're root-like, but they're not actually absorbing nutrients. Whereas in plants, uh, most plants, a lot of the nutrients gets absorbed through the roots, Mm -hmm. um, which sit either within the soil, or if it's like an epiphytic plant, like a like an air plant or something, they're getting it from their surroundings, and also maybe some if it's parasitic in in the plant that they're living on. Um, But so kelps have this like basically a really sticky pad that they, they grow out and anchor onto or, like, adhere themselves to rock on the bottom and then grow upward up to the surface. So they grow throughout the water column and then keep growing and growing. And so eventually their their blades or leaf-like structures are sitting on top of the surface and closest to the sunlight, which is what they need to photosynthesize. Wow. And get sugars.
0: So they kind of just glue and glom onto something and then just kind of just keep growing.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So every once in a while, I'll see a very sad kelp individual that kind of made the wrong choice (laughs) and (laughs) adhered to a small rock. Oh, no. And they have, uh, kelp has these uh, little bubbles or these uh, bulbs that are full of air that are gas that help them float and stay upright throughout mm-hmm. the water column. And so if they're only holding on to a tiny rock and they have lots of these little air bladders going up, they will lift off and you'll see a little rock floating around in the water <laughs> column with a plant attached to it. Or i like, c I'll call it a plant for well, for the sake God, of this. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. a Disney movie
1: in the making. I mean I think they made that. Wasn't it called yeah. <laughs> I was thinking more like finding uh, Nemo. Yeah. But like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just, you've got you got the built-in, like, buddy drama with the rock and the, yeah. the, the algae. Like, this is your fault we're in this situation. <laughs> no, it's your fault. <laughs>
2: oh, my gosh. That, that would be a fun little cartoon to
1: make. Call us Paramount.
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: But so my understanding is, is some of the interest in these cult forests is originating from, hopefully, like, their ability to mitigate some of the more dangerous consequences of climate change and, and mm-hmm. the effect that it's having on the ocean and potential how that would spill over onto land and and how that kind of interaction is, is going to change in the future.
2: Um, yeah, so that's actually... Um, so my PhD is composed of multiple chapters or projects, and one of them is looking at uh, wave dynamics in a kelp forest, but the other one is... Another one of them is looking at their ability to potentially be mitigating uh, future ocean conditions in the context of ocean acidification, which is ultimately the ocean waters are going to be having a changing pH mm-hmm. is kind of one way to look at it. Um, and so, yeah, aquatic vegetation is uh, is thought to have a lot of these potential potentially protective properties, they call it like uh, living shorelines. And they, so kelp has been one of the uh, organisms that's been suggested to actually mitigate either sea level rise, some consequences of sea level rise or ocean acidification uh, due to its like physical structure. So they create... A lot of drag in the water column so as water moves through it um, the water can slow down and that has been shown in that kelp forests can actually slow currents which Mm -hmm. um, are just a unidirectional flow either along shore or across like perpendicular or parallel to shore but that is very distinct and it is different from waves. They operate on the surface Mm -hmm. of the water column. And so a lot of times people lump waves and currents together, but they actually interact with the kelp very differently. And so we don't actually know how much waves or how much kelp can, can modify wave energy, which the reason why we want to know that is because waves are the primary cause of Erosion, coastal erosion, mm-hmm. and so as waves pound onto the, particularly the cliffs um, or shoreline, they are repeatedly breaking up those rocks and dropping pieces into the ocean. And so, the idea is if kelp reduces the wave energy that those those cliffs receive, then potentially they'd be protecting the coastline from coastal erosion. Um, however, we don't actually know if Kelp can can do this, and so we don't right now. What I'm doing is collecting measurements to to quantify the changes, potential changes in wave energy.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: so so that's because I guess is that if I may, is that uh, usually largely field work or is that lab work? Or uh, I mean, I don't know if you can answer that uh, if if you are trying to. I know with lots of research papers, you don't want things to get out prior to things being published. Uh, but I was just kind of curious if, if, if you're examining uh, actual specimens in, in the world, or, or uh, I was a little bit curious about that.
2: Um, yeah, so actually a lot of the work that's been done on this, um, in specifically with kelp, has been through modeling mathematical oh. modeling and oh. lab scaled uh like scaled down studies in labs in flumes mm-hmm. um, flumes a flume is is just like a very large tank uh that has water flowing through it okay. Okay. so it, you can simulate um currents and waves in a flume because it's yeah you can you can modify the the hydrodynamics uh, were con- in a more controlled context
0: invented i think they were invented by by dr seuss that that doctor in particular <laughs> i can't remember exactly but
2: I probably should know that, but I do not. I do not know the history of of flumes as I should. It's fine, Alex.
1: You have a degree in mechanical engineering, and you're asking <laughs> questions about water. Like,
0: I'm just making a Dr. Make, Seuss joke because it's a silly name. Just, I don't know what the problem you're just
1: is. putting the the Rutgers <laughs> Department of Mechanical Engineering on blast for. <laughs> complete failure to to give us i guess a vocab lesson on so if if you do it with air it's a wind tunnel if you do it with water it's a flume
0: yeah no yeah literally yeah correct i was never told that (laughs) well now you know
2: (laughs) yeah so um so a lot of the studies a lot of the information we have on kelp's ability to modify waves has been done in these laboratory settings and also scaled down. So kelp forests can be massive. You're not going to be able to, to reproduce that in a lab at, at the scale that it actually exists in the ocean. And so they've used scaled down versions of kelp forests. Um, in addition, there have been a handful of studies in the field, but there have been limitations due to, um, people's uh so the inability to remove kelp from a system it's it's a, a very valued uh member of the, <laughs> the near shore environment and so uh you're not gonna really get much in the way of permission to cut it down just to, to do some just some to get some experimental controls
1: exactly like hey we want to see if getting rid of this kelp makes your coast road faster
2: let's just get rid of it and see. <laughs> which <laughs> of those parts do you how? like more <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, so a lot of the work that has been done has been done in the lab. And I am solely working in the field. And the, the advantage of the particular system that I'm working in is I'm collaborating with a nonprofit that is conducting kelp forest restoration. Uh, and so they are actually... Um, restoring kelp forests. So, in a habitat that has no kelp, over time through their restoration process, kelp is growing in, and so I can measure the wave dynamics in a single location through time uh, and throughout that kelp growth, and look and see how the wave conditions are changing as a as a consequence of the kelp being there. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So mostly field work, lots of diving and counting. We call they're called stipes. Those are basically like the stems of the the plant, mm-hmm. of the kelp.
1: So can I ask one thing, like
2: Yeah.
1: I I've done it, I know just in lab, um, even in, in undergrad, like they train us in in using different kinds of sensors and mm-hmm. um like pressure sensors um in particular are often like these big mechanical contraptions that one are hard to get good measurements off of. Um, and when you do get them, like they're only like unidirectional. Um, and then, you know, they have to be set up in, in very, uh, known environments so that you can kind of interpret the data a little bit. Mm -hmm. But like you said, you're, you're working in the field. It's more of a dynamic environment and you're trying to study a really natural phenomenon, which doesn't necessarily fit, you know, like on a lab bench very easily. Um, so can I ask like, what are you like the the actual sensors and and um, measurements that you're you're making with?
2: Sure, yeah, so um for the wave uh, dynamics question that I'm addressing, we use seabird pressure sensors. so mm. there's they, I think they call them like sea sea gauge and tide recorders is the official name for them. and so we they are bottom mounted pressure sensors. so we put the sensors. Um, on the bottom of the ocean, we drill holes into rocks and strap them down to those rocks with, uh, eye bolts and hose clamps, super technical, fancy attachments. (laughs) And, um, and they measure pressure. So they're measuring changes in pressure. So as a wave rolls on top of them, uh, a wave, a tall wave is going to exert, is going to have more water sitting on top of the sensor, and so it's going to exert more pressure on the sensor itself. And then as it rolls off, there will be less pressure because there's less water sitting on top of the the sensor. And so we sample at very high frequencies to capture um, a bunch of different types of waves, so waves that are coming in at different times. Uh, So some will sample, some are coming in pretty quickly and some are much longer duration um, as well as at different heights. And so we're able to capture all of that by sampling at really high frequencies. Okay.
1: So can I ask, because um, this, is, this is also going into the background research, I don't know how much you can <laughs> talk about this, but my understanding is that you've got essentially some, some pretty interesting new sensors that, that do this in, in a different way um, that, than is traditionally done. Um, and makes it a lot more economical to deploy these sensors along the coast.
2: Yeah. So i I don't know the current price for a Seabird uh, pressure sensor, but it's it was in the tens of thousands. Uh, <laughs> at least when my advisor purchased his, it was I think like around, around fifteen thousand dollars wow. for one Jeez. of these. Yeah, big big money for a lowly grad student. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kind of scary to put something that that expensive into the ocean and hope that you can get it back out. But um, yeah, so I've actually been using some pressure sensors that were they're more of a do-it-yourself. You could build it if you had a toaster oven, kind of a <laughs> kind of a thing, and they're called Open Wave Height Loggers or O-wells is what the designer calls them. And they are, they're designed by a man, a professor down at San Diego State, Luke Miller and Jarrett Burns, who I believe is at UMass Boston. And they, basically these are designed and modeled after uh, the Seabird, the same sensor that I do use. They they work in a very similar way where they have um, a sensor that's measuring pressure and attached to that is a some oil like a either it's a tube of oil or a bladder like a uh, what we use actually is an IV bag Mm -hmm. so an old IV bag that had saline in it will cut it to size and put mineral oil in it and that actually exerts pressure on the sensor itself so that's the thing that's actually coming into contact with the the seawater Mm -hmm. Um, and so these instruments operate in a very similar way look A little more janky. They're just made out of some PVC and a lot of glue. And um and then they're uh,
1: living at the bottom of the ocean. I don't I don't think the kelp are worried about fashion week down there.
2: Exactly. (laughs) Um and then they but they cost about two hundred dollars each in parts, which is much, much less. A little bit less than fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's you could have let me let me just try and do quick math on air here. That's that's what sixty of those sensors for the price of. Did I do that right? Five times fifteen? No, seventy-five. Seventy-five of those sensors for the price of of one of the the originals. Yep. Oh. <laughs> yep.
2: So, and so we there's actually a a paper that we're working on now that compares the values collected by a seabird okay. sensor. To these, uh, my advisor calls them el cheapos. <laughs> um, so they, uh, the designer calls them. Oh well, it's like, oh well, like <laughs> we lost it. Oh well, they're, they're two hundred dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, but we. So we've done some comparisons, and the. I guess I maybe I shouldn't be saying this. I don't know if I can say it if the paper hasn't come out, but they, they are let's just say that the, the they're results very are forthcoming. And, they are, and yeah. they they hold up okay. very well. Cool. So um so I've actually we've built up a bunch of these and it it is you can get a lot more information because these also sample at a real the same frequency, so very high frequency, but the battery lasts for a year Gee. whereas the sampling at four hertz so four times a second for an entire year just wow chugging along yeah. that's a lot of data um, i'm not going to try too to do much that, data Matt. really yeah. <laughs> um, my computer actually has a hard time with all
0: that data but um you can think of all the money you're saving you get a new computer yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but the the seabirds, granted, these particular units that I'm working with are 15 years old, but they last for 21 days Mm. and only sample for bursts. So like 20 minutes, four times a day at that sampling rate. And the battery life is quite short. Okay. And the memory life is also uh, what gets them. So definitely advantageous to have these little guys
1: that's uh that's i think that's a a good time to to for us to take a break and we'll talk a little bit more about the implications of you know cheap high duration uh high intensity sensors being distributed throughout the world after the jump
0: sounds good All thanks right. everyone yeah Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name's Alex Hobbs, and I am going to say some words to you real quick. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for listening, and thank you, Kristen, for being on the show. It was a really good episode, and we were so lucky to have had her. Uh, if you are interested in the music that is featured on the show, they are songs by an artist, Andy G. Cohen, and can be found on the Free Music Archives. One song is called Just a Blip, off the album Through the Lens, and the other is called Scramby Eggs, and it is off the album Layers. You can find more about that in the description. If you're interested in learning more about this podcast, you can find out more about us at The Farmcast on Facebook and Twitter. And you can go to our website, thefarmcast.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we'll be back with you again soon. Have a good time with the rest of the episode. Bye-bye!
1: And we're back. And uh, I guess picking up where we, we left off, um, part of what you've been doing in your research is taking what historically have been very expensive and complicated and and limited sensors and turning them into, you know, high duration, cheap, dispo- almost disposable um, sensors that can be deployed everywhere. and And, you know, now... We're starting to hear about things like the Internet of Things, which, as far as I can tell, is is mostly just driven by putting sensors in your fridge and your toaster and you know your factory line, and that that's supposed to make the future a whole lot better, in quotes. Um, so I wanted to just just talk and hear you guys' opinions on where we're going in the future of I guess a sensorized world and like what does it mean that one we're getting information from from many many things around us in the future but you know that also means that many many things around us in the future are collecting information and and what are kind of maybe some of the good things and some of the bad things and maybe some of the surprising things you're you're looking to to see in the next 20 to 30 years
2: um yeah i think in starting with just in still in the context of Uh, doing research in like marine science or in the ocean, Um, collecting a lot of data and a lot of data at really high frequency is great. We get a lot of information from that, but there is a cost because the bottleneck still comes at on the the personnel side where we have to process and interpret that data. Mm -hmm. And it's, that is the, the hardest part so far I felt. Um, about doing my PhD is the amount of brain power it takes to, to actually use that information. And also I think this, this coming into kind of what to do with a ton of data on like a broader scale is it's really important to understand the context in which that information was gathered Mm -hmm. and you can find patterns all over the place but are they true and are they uh informed patterns that is that is something that you cannot get from just a a big data set in isolation and so i think that is going to be a challenge moving forward is is maintaining that context with all of this big data
0: big data
1: i think that's (laughs) yeah well i think that's i mean yeah like you're right that that processing it is the hard thing and i think that's a lot of what's right you know yeah like big data as a as a buzzword is not so much that Oh, you know this data hasn't been there before right like obviously things have been going going on and, and you know like we're looking at medicine and business and things like that and it's not that you know we not that we weren't measuring like people's cholesterol and things, but you know either we didn't think to store it or we didn't have the computational power to to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, kind of the revolution here is that we've learned to automate a lot of data processing. But yeah, like a lot of that, you, the way you do that is just strip it down to the bare essentials and you know turn X information input into Y predictive output, um, and. That is easier when you don't have to account for context, and therefore, yeah, the the business decision is off. Okay, just strip the context out of it and deal with the barest minimum of the data set that you can get your hands on.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, you know you, I, I kind of somewhat disagree with with what you're. saying. I get what you're saying with we we had data before, but also in, in many situations, and especially um, like with with the new. Kristen's new sort of underwater measurements, you know, that is more data and, and there is mm-hmm. more more access to that data. But even in other things, uh, I think we we're we were talking about this the other day, Jordan, with the um uh cheaper cheaper centrifuges for, for uh blood, I believe it was. Yeah, that was
1: not so, not so much a well not so much a, a sensorized example there, but yeah, just just dispersion of methods and technology and, and just Things happening often either off the grid, or in a, in a way that isn't easily captured or monitored.
0: Yeah, and and so, but you also get access to that to things like that on a cheaper scale to people who couldn't get access to that data before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
2: I think that's definitely the one of the biggest pros is accessibility, and th- going back to the the wave the wave data. People have used wave exposure where they just look at a coastline and they're like, that's got a lot of – I mean, it's a little bit more robust than just there's a lot of waves there. <laughs> um, but that is – particularly in marine ecology, that's that's a very important factor. Environmental factor is uh, just wave exposure or uh, hydrodynamic intensity. It's like a very – you either have very dynamic – Uh, environment which can be really challenging to live in and so people want to measure this they want to know what the context that their organisms and their habitats are are in when they're measuring and conducting experiments and so a lot of times they have to use really drastically different habitats to get at that okay this wave this the wave dynamics in this place are extremely different from the place over here that I'm comparing it to. Whereas like if you have these sensors that are a couple hundred dollars, they're more accessible, they're pretty straightforward to use. And they just take some PVC and some glue in a toaster oven um, that they, they can capture, they can ha- actually have true measurements for these things. And that's, that is definitely like, they're pretty, they're small too. And they're, you can put them anywhere and you could get directionality from them if you have more of them. As opposed to just big wave, little wave, fast wave, slow wave, and so that's—I mean—I think that is analogous to a lot of sensors, is that you can get more accurate measurements or more more informed measurements, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a, a big argument in favor of just broad data collection is that you—you know—you're never gonna want you're never going to know what you wanted to know five years ago. Unfortunately,
2: right? no. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like, you, like, you can't, I think, um, yeah, right after 9-11, um, there were some researchers who were studying, like, the formation of, like, flashbulb memories, right? And, you know, in the midst of all that chaos, they realized, like, that like this is right now. We need to start doing surveys and, like, gather up, like, people's, impre- you know, write down where people were, what they were doing, um, and then 10 years later, I think they went back and asked people again, like, where were you and what were you doing when 9/11 happened? And the answers were completely different, right? And so they they knew that they had now strong evidence, you know, of the way memories form and things like that. but you can't like you can't in 10 years later, go back and say like, oh man, it would have been great if we had written down like what everyone was doing right after 911 so that we could compare memories to what actually happened. And so like, in, in a way, this kind of like indiscriminate like data collection enables you like it essentially creates a perfect memory record so that if we want to go back and look at, you know, the history of any system, like whether that's a social system, whether that's a physical or a biological or ec- ecological system, just having sensors out there lets you you know, rather than have a guess or anecdote, lets you have just hard evidence about what's going on as it's going on.
2: Yeah, there's actually just yesterday I came across this um, professor who is using she used World War One maps of kelp actually <laughs> wow. uh, By done by I think the Navy uh, or the government, some mm. branch of the government. Um, she's using those maps to, to look at relationships, uh, uh, in kelp through time. And, uh, it was, it's pretty crazy. It's not sensor stuff, but, um, but just, yeah, like you're saying, you never know what you're going to, what you're going to use that data for down the road. And yeah. so it's, yeah, it's, it's hard though. Cause like when I'm designing an experiment and I want to put sensors out, my advisor's first thing is, okay, tell me exactly what that's going to give you. Tell me yeah. what you're going to do with that data. And that's a lot of that comes from the inherent risk of putting expensive things in the ocean and the oceans just. It's always a risk that the ocean's just going to eat it. Hey, it. It doesn't care. that, yeah. that cost you a lot. Of it's money. like uh, <laughs> I'm going to move that over here. <laughs> I'm going to smash this rock into it, or a seal will come by and flick off a piece of it. It's kind of important. <laughs> <laughs> Not that sounds, speaking from experience, yeah, that but. Like a real <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You sure? Sh- you sure they weren't able to determine the cause of death to that seal? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's weird. It had nothing to is. do with the. ADCPs,
2: <laughs> nothing to do with that situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, just that. Um, we right now, I think the main reason why uh, it's like, why are you putting that out there? Is because there's a cost to to losing it. But if you have a lot of a lot of sensors and they're very cheap, and you can just put them out, that's great. But it it does take processing Mm -hmm. and a lot of that can be done on the computer but uh the processing can happen but interpretation of of those results i think that that's the key piece is is that we we really do need to do that and it's good to have context for interpreting it appropriately
1: Mm -hmm. so an area that, that is very much being revolutionized by um the like the proliferation of cheap satellites Right, I mean, relatively cheap compared to you know a ten million dollar unit cost. You can now maybe get you know ten thousand dollars worth of parts, and obviously the launch costs are going to factor into that. But it means that now we have these these just constellations of satellites that are up in in orbit, um, and so you've got now capabilities. One, yeah, like it, it's fine to lose one, right, as opposed to like the Hubble Space Telescope where they had to again send like the space shuttle up to fix it again after, like, I think, like, one of the mirrors or something failed to deploy. Now it's, you know, if you lose one of, like, the 30 satellites that you sent up on a single launch, that's, you know, tragic, but, but not a huge deal. And that means that you, you can literally have eyes in the sky over every single point of the Earth at all times 24-7 for the rest of history. Um, and, like, that's that's already where we're at. And, you know, we're already kind of moved on to the next thing where like the emerging companies are not the ones that are making super major improvements to the hardware, but are making improvements to the processing pipeline. Um, and I think that that's, uh, th- this is, I think where we start to hit kind of the flip side of, of the concern because then not only like, are you, you know, are you processing it and maintaining the context? Like, who has access to that information and you know do you have an expectation of privacy relative to a satellite that somebody put up above you know not necessarily above your house but now has vision down onto your entire commute and just how you spend your time throughout the day if they really wanted to
0: yeah that's it is concerning i mean it's it's i i think a lot of people myself included just Try not to think about it. <laughs> uh, I think it's kind of human nature. I mean, you were saying how everything's recorded now. And my only thought when we were discussing that was, was well, I mean, not my only thought, one of my thoughts was that uh, it's so strange because humans are made to forget. We, we are programmed mm. to not remember everything. And it is interesting to look at the 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 way that has worked with with as you were talking about the nine eleven stuff and and how people remember things because we're not meant to remember everything <laughs> yeah
2: i i also our our bodies block stuff out on purpose, so it's i mean with like pain too like think going back to pain so yeah. I don't know.
1: I think it's. I think it's. It. It's just an, an accepted, one of those kind of accepted underpinnings of society that. Not there's not a you know. When you're a kid and and a a teacher yells at you that, like, this is going on your permanent record, like, that's terrifying. (laughs) And, you know, you only relax when you grow up and find out that that's not a thing. Um, But increasingly, it looks like maybe that is a thing. And maybe, like, you know, like, certainly we've seen people getting in trouble for things that they put on Twitter or Facebook 10, 15, 20 years ago. And people kind of do have a permanent record now because recording everything you say and keeping it in perpetuity is is cheap now, um, and that that's kind of also concerning because. Well,
2: some of my ignorance is going to bleed through here, but are there aren't there laws on recording, like recording people's voices, like recording it and then using it against them, like in court or something, like for an investigation? So
1: in in the US, I think that varies state by state, like different state, like I think I might be wrong on this, but well, so some states are two party consent states in the sense that anybody and everybody in a recording has to give consent for that to be recorded and especially for it to be admissible in law. Other states are one party consent states in the sense that as long, you know. If you want to record something, right, like you can record it and you don't need the consent of anybody else that you're recording except for the fact that, you know, it's a recording of you. You can't, like, say, drop a a camera into somebody's house, right, and nobody who is on the recording has given consent, and that's not okay. But as long as, like, you are yourself having your behavior or audio or voice or whatever being recorded, you know, you can store that and you don't have to inform them that you've recorded it. Um, as and, long
2: as you aren't actively using it against them, no, I mean, even or using like, it in any.
1: Well, so there's. I mean, like the part of it is is one, right? In in that sense, like, say you you know you were in either an abusive situation or like something unethical was happening at at your job, right? Mm-hmm. Like you would want to be able to record and document what's going on. Obviously, the people perpetrating. Not, the, gonna, yeah, not gonna, or not gonna, gonna like, yeah, are sure. not going to consent to that, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you, know, you still want people to be able to record that kind of behavior and provide evidence of it in court, yeah. But increasingly, I think, like we we, we give consent to things without realizing it, right? Right? Like all
2: of the except all.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that—that that was the whole thing with, like, with Snapchat when it. I feel like that—that's not like its killer feature anymore. But when it first showed up, the point was you sent a snap and then it disappeared. 30 seconds later, and it was gone forever, right? But, like, with Twitter and Facebook, you know, when you sign up, like, essentially, like, what you're signing up for is to have everything that you put onto this platform recorded yeah, forever. Yep. Um, and, you know, you, like, as humans, yeah, we forget, like, what somebody said on Twitter last week or last month or or a year ago. But the internet now has a very long memory, and you know, whether you're, you're Kevin Hart or James Gunn or, you know, whoever gets caught up in the latest Twitter scandal, right? Like what you said 10, 15 years ago, like, you know, there's a picture of your face right next to it and it shows up on, on, you know, billboards and talk shows and things like that. And so that like, we're already seeing kind of what happens when it becomes really cheap to record people's Writings and and expressions and keep that data forever. Like what you know, what happens when it starts getting real cheap to record, say, like obviously like your health information and your, um, like your positional information with GPS, right? Like is your is is, in the way that, you know, applying for a home loan, they you know they demand your credit history for a good long time. Is our insurance company is going to be able to? demand your health history or, like, your Fitbit log and show that, oh, you say you're active, but your Fitbit shows you've only walked 2,000 steps every day for the last five
0: years. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think some companies have actually tried to do things similar to that with insurance. They'll give you insurance, but it's a higher, you know, portion that you have to pay for if you don't meet their requirements for movement and stuff like that. Um, and I don't think they were pre- – oh, wasn't this one of the things when the teachers uh, teachers union strike in, in one of the states recently where they got barely a raise that year and it was completely consumed by essentially the health pre- health insurance premiums that went up and they, mm-hmm. they had to pay more money if they didn't do a certain like quantity of exercise. And the quantity of exercise required to meet that requirement was absurd, especially for a teachers who are always working. Yes.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, no, they I'm... have those uh, those desks with treadmills now. So. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh I'll yeah, that'll fix that. it. Yeah, a lot of teachers. <laughs>
0: that's where teachers yeah. are at usually. They're just sitting at a desk. Sitting at a desk. Those <laughs> fat Never cat, cat walking teachers. Around. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I I don't want to end on such a negative note.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's it's hard to have a single positive like just takeaway. It, like I said, there there are obvious. There are both obvious and non-obvious benefits that come from having a perfect memory of everything that's, that's ever happened, right? And that can very much help you accelerate learning, you know, both in terms of research and just, you know, being able to document, like, hey, yeah, this is what happened, and then this is what happened. And you can see how things evolve over time, but there are very obvious downsides as well.
0: Yeah. So... Anyway, I, I, do you think that's a good ending point?
1: I don't think it's a good ending point. But I, think, <laughs> I, don't know, I mean, I think I think we are very much in the in the middle of this story, right? Like in fifty or hundred years, right? This is going to be the time, like when society came to reckon with essentially surveillance and recording in the same way we had to reckon with widespread distribution of you know written materials after the printing press and things like that. And, you know, widespread distribution of, you know, industrialized equipment and, and electrical power and things like that. This is just kind of like a new technology that's part of our society. And I don't know. I guess we can hope that things will be better in the future. And I think it sounds like, you know, we'll have a better sense of what's going on with Kelp forests in the future. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, maybe. Yeah, but, all the sensors. Yeah.
2: All the sensors. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Maybe maybe we just need to just make the, the it's like the overseas territory act like you can put all the sensors you want in the ocean, but you know, there you gotta you gotta pass customs to bring them on land.
2: Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> 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 I guess speaking of that, I brought a uh it's called a Niskin bottle. It's like a way to capture water uh at a specific depth without uh if you, if you were to like throw a bucket in the ocean and then scoop up what you wanted water from down below, obviously that would mix with all the water that came into it as you're pulling it up. So it's a, this is like a, a way to capture water at a, at a specific depth, but it kind of looks like a pipe bomb. And <laughs> I, uh, I was bringing it down to Southern California to collect some data uh, and I was flying and I it was mm. expensive and so mm. I obviously so you wasn't gonna to just... bring it on the cabin, didn't so, you? So yeah, I yeah. brought it in my carry-on and they were like, What <laughs> is that? And they were swabbing it with everything, mm. but it's for measuring. Uh, I wanted to like measure the chemical properties yeah. in the water, so I was yeah. like, "What are you putting in there?" Like, oh, yeah, like don't, don't swipe it. it. <laughs> and of course, that was not the best reaction. Yeah. To... No, don't, don't try and check
1: if that's a bomb. What are you doing? Yeah.
2: <laughs> but as soon as I said I was a marine biologist, they were like, "Oh, yeah, oh yeah, okay." And they were way <laughs> nicer. Okay, Which I'll, is, I'll that's, remember that trick that's next the time I'm going through. <laughs> yeah. <people report. laughs> don't worry i i study dolphins
1: okay yeah i think i think that's a better that's a much better better end end. yeah (laughs) yeah here's here's the takeaway you know think about the ethical implications of your chief sensors but also make sure they don't look like pipe bombs
2: and (laughs) if they do you're a marine biologist yes that's your cover
0: (laughs) Uh, oh that's a good point thank you so much for joining us Kristen.
2: yeah Yeah, thanks for having me
0: yeah this has been great all right we'll see y'all later have a good one bye-bye Thank mm-hmm. you.